Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to lift you high, to lift up your word, to look into your word on how we should live. We ask you to just open our ears to hear and anoint our hearing, anoint our thoughts as we look at this. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Galatians 5, starting at verse 24. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another, envying one another. That's where we're going to stop. So we've been talking about, two weeks ago we talked about the, the works of the flesh. Last week we talked about the fruit of the Spirit. Actually, three weeks we talked about the works of the flesh, and then we talked about fruit of, and then the fruit of the Spirit. And we're going to be looking at this one. He starts out saying, And they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affection and, and hate. They that are Christ, those of us who have accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, he says that we have crucified the flesh. Now this is kind of an interesting statement because this in the Hebrew, in the Greek is an aorist active indicative. It's a fact. And it's active. He has crucified the flesh. And a one-time act that is supposed to go on forever. Now we know that we don't necessarily live that way and we've talked a lot about that. But God is saying that the flesh is killed. The flesh has been killed. Now, unfortunately, we keep going to the graveside of the flesh and digging it up and dragging it back out and around and, and trying to let it have power. But it's dead. And it's interesting what he said, what he said about what's dead in it. He said that it's crucified the flesh with its affections. Now, affections is not a word to, be, to like, but it's actually its sufferings. The flesh's sufferings. And you think about this. We talked about the works of the flesh a while back ago. You know, uh, and let's just read that list real quick so that we bring it back into mind. The works of the flesh are manifest in verse 19, which are these. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatreds, variances, emulations, wrath, straffs, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and the like. All of those works of the flesh bring pain, doesn't it? You know, when you're in the middle of doing them, you think, they're, hey, they're, I'm having fun doing them. And if, if sin didn't have that momentary part of pleasure, we wouldn't do it. Okay? If, if every time we sinned, we got our hand burnt, <laughs> we would very quickly <laughs> stop sinning, unless you're a crazy person who enjoys pain. But... You know, and we were listening uh, when we went to the, the husband and wife, uh, pastor and wives retreat. The, the guy, the psychologist up there, he goes, "If you had immediate results from sin, you would you wouldn't sin." He goes, "If when you ate the donut, immediately a pound of fat showed up on your side, <laughs> and you ate another donut, and another pound of flesh showed up on your side, you would say, I'm not eating any more donuts." You know, and that's the way sin is. There's always a consequence for it. There's always suffering for it. But when we're doing it, we aren't thinking about the consequences. We're just thinking about how much fun it is at that moment. And anybody who says that sin doesn't have fun is lying to you. I've heard pastors try to tell you that sin doesn't have fun, and they're lying, and they know it. We all know, because if it wasn't fun, we wouldn't do it. If we didn't get some pleasure out of it, we would not sin. We would obey God because he said to do it. But we know that sin has its momentary pleasures but it's followed up with suffering. And affections here should have been 
Another word they could have used was passion, but we don't understand passion the way it's used in the Old English either. And it means suffering. So we're going to just go straight to suffering. It says that he's crucified the, the flesh and its sufferings. And then it says, and its lusts. Now, lust is a very strong word, and that means to desire something evil. Okay? We don't usually use that I'm lusting for something that's good for me. It's just not the way we use lust. Okay? Lust is, to, lust is why most people get married in, in this day and age. They really, they're, they're lusting each other. They want each other. They're not in love. They're infatuated or in lust, but they're not in love. And God says, the flesh has lusts. The, the flesh wants to do evil, and we've talked about this a lot. The flesh wants to do evil. That's who we are in our core of our being. We are sinners. Okay? And this is what Christianity teaches. We all are sinners. Why? It goes all the way back to Adam and Eve falling and putting the sin nature in us. We are born sinners. We will sin. And this is why I say over and over again, don't be surprised when a sinner sins. <laughs> you know, when, and that's all of us, even us sitting in this room. You know, when somebody does something mean to you or bad to you or they sin, there's no reason to be surprised because they are doing what the flesh does. Now, I expect Christians to be a little less sinful than the, than the non-Christian. But I realize that sinners, the, the Christians are sinners, saved by grace. And they're going to do bad things. I do plenty of bad things. All you got to do is get to know me, and you're going to know that I do bad things. You know, and it's, but it's because that's who we are in our flesh. And Jesus came along and said, I've crucified it. I've crucified your flesh. That's the only way we can have victory. That's the only way we can do anything good, truly good anyway. Because sinners, if they do something good, are usually trying to get something. You know, how many of you have ever had somebody who's generally bad come up to you and be nice to you? The very first thing you're thinking is, okay, what do they want? <laughs> because we know that sinners don't do good for just the purpose of doing good. You know, uh, and I've shared you with you, my daughter used to do this to me. She'd come up to me, bat her eyes, and say, Daddy. <laughs> and I was like, what do you want? Yeah. And the answer was always nothing. I'm going, yes, you do. <laughs> you know, but we all do that in some, in some way in our life, you know, where we're doing good to try to get something. That's part of the sin nature. That desire to get something. And it leads to living in this works of the flesh. But God is saying, I've crucified it. And I love the fact that he says it's done in the aorist. It's in the past and goes forward. It's not something I have to go through all the time. All I've got to do is let the dead man stay. Let the flesh stay in the grave. Quit dragging him up. And we keep doing that. We keep dragging this dead thing up and saying, we're going to do what you want. And we want to be careful about that because it's so easy to do. We want to do it. We desire to do it. And he says it's crucified. And every time we sin, we bring around suffering. We bring around the lust of the flesh. And it's greater or lesser suffering because you, we reap what we sow. If we sow to the flesh, we're going to reap this flesh's desires, uh, rewards, the fruit, of the fruit of this flesh, which is going to be pain, suffering. And we want to be so careful of this. But it goes on to say in this verse, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. 
this word if is kind of an interesting if. Uh, I don't know if I've mentioned this to you, but the word if in, in Greek oftentimes doesn't mean the same thing we think of if. They have multiple words for if. Okay, for English, when we read the word if, it's if and it may or may not be so. Okay, that's how we look at it in English. If you say if, it's pretty much it may or may not happen. In Greek, they have different words for if. One of them means if and it can't happen, if and it will happen, if and it may or may not happen. <laughs> and there's a couple of others I don't remember off the top because they're, they're rarely used. This one is if and in case you do. <laughs> okay, so he's still saying if and you have a choice. It says, if we live in the Spirit, you know, live in the Spirit. And this word live is Zoe. And Zoe in the, in the Greek always refers to eternal life. If we're saved and in, in walking in the Spirit, uh, and, and we're in the Spirit, and we are if we're saved, okay, never, never let anybody teach you that you're not in the Holy Spirit. If you are saved, you are baptized into the Holy Spirit, you are plunged into the Holy Spirit, and you're going to stay there until he changes you. Okay? There's not all this second, you know, blessings, and you don't have the Spirit until you get the special prayer over you and all this other stuff. If you're saved, you are in the Holy Spirit. Now, you may not be practicing the gifts of the Holy Spirit, which is a totally different topic, but you are in the Holy Spirit. He lives in you, and you've got every capability of the Holy Spirit in you. So it says, if you're in the Holy Spirit, if you're living in the Holy Spirit, walk in the Spirit. That's a different way of living. That's taking God's word and saying, I'm going to live the way he wants me to live. I'm going to change the way I think. And we talk a lot about this. One of the greatest things that we as Christians have, we live as citizens of another country, the country of heaven, as opposed to this world system, which is run by Satan. We are to think differently on just about everything. Satan is a liar and the father of lies. For every truth that God has, Satan has multiple lies. He doesn't have just one, he's got lots of lies. Okay, God says that marriage is between a man and a woman and Satan comes along and says, well, it doesn't really matter. You can have man or woman, a guy and a guy, a, guy, a girl and a girl, uh, a guy and five girls, a girl with five guys, uh, you know, animals, whatever you want, you know, that is what marriage is by his, by his lies, okay? And God says, no. God says, tell the truth. In Leviticus, he defines the truth as telling the whole truth, everything you know about it. What does Satan define the truth as? Tell him as little of the truth as you can to get away with it. Okay? Go to court and take the oath of the court. I, I affirm to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And if you've listened to your lawyer, he said, tell only what you've been asked. Okay, so even when you tell, pledge to follow God's word for the truth, your lawyer's telling you lie. Okay, now he's not telling you truly to lie as to bend the truth, and, and, but he's telling you don't tell the whole truth that you know. Okay, difference of the way things go. God's truth, Satan's lies. All of the stuff that we have out there that is political correct thinking, most of it is against God's truth. And we're being told don't. Don't go there. Don't go against that. We need to hold up God's word. We need to be thinking the way he thinks. We need to be looking at this. I was talking with uh, Annie and Kay this morning about this couple that got married at uh, College Park under a covenant marriage. Now, many of you may not know that there's such a thing as a covenant marriage in Arizona. There's two ways to get married in Arizona, just a straightforward marriage, which you can get divorced for no fault, or a covenant marriage, 
where you can only get divorced because of adultery. Now, as a Christian, which one should you probably pick? Yeah. Covenant marriage, obviously, because that matches what God says. You get married and you're to stay married, and the only reason for divorce, according to the God's word, is adultery. Okay? And so, again, how does the world think? Hey, get together, you don't like each other after a couple weeks, a year, two years, 20 years, whatever, just get rid of them. You know, no problem. You know, and it's really sad that there is so many problems. There are so many problems with divorce. The divorce rips lives apart. You know, I never thought I was affected by my mom and my dad's divorce until I got to be in my 15th year of, uh, of when I was married. My parents got divorced when I was 15. That was a hard year for me because in the back of my mind was marriages break up in 15 years. <laughs> that was a very hard year for me. But we need to be thinking. God says if we're, in, if we're living in the Spirit we need to, and walking in the Spirit, we need to walk in the ways of the Spirit. And that means changing our mind. How do we change our minds and, and change our minds? We get into God's Word. We get into God's Word and say, this is how God thinks. This is how He wants us to think. And we start agreeing with Him, whether it's popular with the world or not. And I'm going to tell you right now, it won't be popular with most of the world. Now, Say anything right now against homosexual marriage and you're going to have most of the world looking at you as if you are absolutely insane and out of touch and you need to go to jail. And it won't be too long until that does happen that we go to jail for those thoughts and beliefs. Because the world really thinks that we're out of step with the world believing in those ancient words back there that say it's wrong. You know, but we look at it and say God's word is so true. It is so true. We get into, get into talking with people about the beginnings of the world, and they start talking about evolution against creationism. You know, the Bible's very clear. And you know what? True science is very clear that, that creationism is right. Because there's, a, there's this really simple law in, in science, and it's, it's, it goes right in the face of evolution. Life does not spontaneously generate from nothing. And yet every person who believes in evolution believes that life spontaneously generated from nothing at least once. Even though it's a law of science that it doesn't happen, they have to have it happen. And they have no problem with it. They have no problem with violating a complete law of science to say, well, because it had to happen, it had to have happened. You know, it doesn't make any sense. You know, so be careful when you look at this. I mean, we have a strong, strong place to stand on. When you don't make sense of what the word says, choose to believe the word. Choose to believe the word because you will find that it's true. Years and years they said different things weren't true. For, for centuries they said David was not a real king of Israel. There was no proof that he ever existed. And then they found these tablets talking about King David. <laughs> Just like the Bible talked about him in historical records. And they go, oh, well, I guess he did exist. You know, all of these things they say, you know, and they'll point to the Bible, well, there's no proof that this happened. And then give them time, they'll find it. Give them time and they'll find the proof. The Bible has never been proved wrong and never will be proved wrong because it is God's word. And I've said it over and over. If we cannot trust every word of the Bible, every word of the Bible to be true, we need to throw it away and, because it means nothing. Now, you want to be careful, having said that, some people read different versions of the Bible that aren't properly translated, so you need to go back into the Greek and the Hebrew sometimes to understand, 
just like today when we read the word affection, which in, in old English meant suffering, and we don't, you know, we think of it as liking things. <laughs> you know, I had great affection for this person. You know, in old English, I would have meant, boy, this person really makes me suffer. Unfortunately, sometimes when you have affection for somebody and you really like them, they do make you suffer, unfortunately. <laughs> because relationships hurt, don't they? You know, they really do hurt because people are going to do things that are going to hurt you. That you have to forgive them for. You have to show God's love for. And they're not going to do everything that you want them to do, and they're not even going to do everything the right way sometimes. And there's great pain sometimes in that. But God is saying, walk in the Spirit. Follow the Spirit, the presence, the power. And this, this walking idea is the idea of an orderly walk. It talks, about, it talks about the lineup of the soldiers walking in order, in a parade, in, in, in lines and columns. When we're walking in the Spirit, there's going to be order in our life. Order in our life. Doesn't mean there won't be any trouble. Everybody who's walked with God for any length of time knows there's trouble in our lives. <laughs> and a matter of fact, sometimes there's a lot more trouble in our life than if we weren't saved because Satan wants to trip us up. He doesn't want us to be a good example. He doesn't want us to be a good witness. There are going to be times when our eyes are focused on God and everything's going along fine. And then Satan will appear before God and say, you know, hey, have you considered your servant and put your name in there? And Satan will go, yeah, I have, but you're protecting them. Okay, you can touch them. But always remember this, when you're being touched by Satan, he has a limit. God always limits what he can do. Just as he did with, with uh, Job. He says, okay, you can do him, but you can't, you can take care of him, but you can't touch his, touch his health. You can't take this, you can't do this, you can't take his life. There's always the limit that God puts on him. And someday maybe we'll be called to be martyrs. Maybe it'll be called to take our life. But you know the good news there? God will give us the grace to do it. When we have to stand before him to do anything, he'll give us the grace to go through it. We're told all, that nothing has overtaken us but such is common to man, but God is faithful, who will not suffer us to be tempted above that which we are able, but will provide a way of escape. That escape is Jesus. We hide in Jesus and he gives us that escape. He gives us that protection. He gives us the grace to go through whatever it is we have to go through. And we've talked about this. The closer you get to God, the more you get to learn, the harder the test is going to be. I don't want to discourage anybody, but it's true. The more tests you pass, the harder the test will get. Because it has to, otherwise it's not a test. And we've talked about this over and over. Now, if you're a kindergartner and somebody threw an uh, algebra question at you, you'd look at them like, what is this? I have no idea. You get a one plus one is two test as a kindergartner. But if you were a high schooler and they gave you one plus one is two, two plus two is four, you're gonna look at them like, you look at your teacher as if the teacher was insane. You know, that's not a test. You're sitting in an algebra class, addition is not a test. Multiplication shouldn't be a test, even though it is for some of our kids nowadays, but uh, it, you understand what I'm saying. As we grow in Christ, the test must get harder for us because otherwise it's not a test. But the test will never be harder than what we can go through because we've already been trained for it. A test is, you know, I used to have a teacher who said that the test was an example to show, me, show us how much you've learned. And that was all it was. And a good test should be that. It shouldn't test on things you don't know. Now, college professors didn't always do that. College professors taught you something and tested on the book. And they didn't teach from the book, usually. You had to read the book. 
Uh, it was quite an interesting experience the first time I took a test in college. I'm taking all these notes from the teacher, and then I get tested on what the book said. Luckily, I had read the book. Uh, so, you know, I'm going, why am I taking notes? <laughs> okay. But a good test teaches, tests you on what you have been taught. And you're going to learn. You need to learn. You need to grow. And then you get tested on what you've learned. Because you don't know what you know until it's tested. You don't know what you truly believe until it's tested. I can say all day that I believe that God is my protector and when I die I'm going to go to heaven. Do I really know what that is until I'm faced with death? That's when the test comes. Do I truly believe that I'm headed to heaven? And am I able to just say, okay God, thank you. Do I always believe that all things work together for good or am I grumbling and complaining about the bad things that are happening to me that seem to be totally terrible? Now I've, told, I've talked to God a couple of times when bad things are happening. God, I, I really don't understand how this is for my good. You've said it, but I sure don't understand it. And that's a good, honest place because none of us are going to understand it sometimes. When we're in the midst of the trial, we are not going to understand how it's for our good. All we know is that we're in pain. And believe me, that's all you know. That's all I ever know. And I'm having gone through trials, I just know that I'm in pain and it hurts. But I always quote to myself, all things work together for good for those who are called according to the purpose of God. I don't know why, God. I don't know how, but you said it. And God, I'm going to hold you to it. And it's hard. Believe me, it's hard. I've been there <laughs> many times. Looking at God and saying, God, I don't understand how this, what's going on can be for my good, but you said it is, and I'm going to deal with it. Going through something right now that I don't understand why, how it could be for my good. But God says it's going to be for good. And I keep looking at him going, God, I don't understand this. I see no way that this could be good. But you know, through experience, I know that it will be. That when I come out on the other side of the test, at some time in the future, it will have been for good. And we need to be able to grab hold of that because it's important because otherwise we're going to get crushed and the world gets crushed. When I was in the workplace, and I had more people that would come to me because their life was falling apart, but they had watched me going through hard things and saying, you always seem to have a smile. You always seem to be pleasant. Why? Now, I never thought I did, but obviously I did because I've had it told to me often enough, but it gave me a great opportunity to share Christ with them. Christ is my strength. You need to know him. And not just head knowledge of him. You have to have a relationship with God. And we've talked over and over about this. I talk to so many people, and it seems to me that all they have is a head knowledge. They know that Jesus lived. They know that he died. They can quote to you the verse that he died for their sins. <laughs> but they don't seem to live with that victory of what it means to have had him die for their sins. And I don't know if they're saved or not. That's between them and God. But I just look at them and say, where's the victory? Where is the victory that God has done for you? Do you really know him? Christianity is great because it's a relationship with the God of the universe. It's not a bunch of rules saying, follow these rules and you might be okay. And notice I say might because that's what every religion out there says. If you do enough of these good things and you don't do enough bad things to overpower them, you're going to be okay. That's the lie of Satan on how to please God. You know, at the end he's just going to throw all the good and bad on a, on a scale and it's going to you see which side you go to. What a depressing way to live. Yeah. 
Is it one good for one bad? Is it five good for one bad? Is it, you know, this one was so bad, I gotta do thousands of things to, to get over it, to never know, to never know if you've done enough good to overcome your bad. It's gotta be a horrendous way to live. And God says it's real simple. It doesn't matter what you've done, you're going to hell. Outside of accepting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Accept the Son, you're declared perfect and headed to heaven. Without him, it doesn't matter what you've done, you're headed to hell. Because it only takes one sin to cause the, cause the whole scale to flop to the bottom. And, and say so you deserve hell. One sin. And, all, and God is saying, I'm out here with my gift. I've got the gift of salvation. Reach out and take it. Live according to that life. Because the Holy Spirit is living in us. He wants to change us. And all we've got to do is surrender. I remember months ago we talked about, I shared with you the idea that baptism means to immerse into something that changes the quality of another item. And the picture that we used was vegetables being put into vinegar and staying there. The vegetable does nothing at all in that vinegar except become a pickle. And it becomes a pickle because it's in the vinegar. Okay? If it jumped out of the vinegar, it would remain a vegetable and rot outside the vinegar. In the vinegar it changes and has a life that does not end until you consume it. But So we want to be able to say that we change because the Holy Spirit changes us. Not because I work real hard at being good, not because I work real hard at getting rid of the sin, but the Holy Spirit indwelling me says, just relax. Just rest. Have faith that I can do the work. It's called the finished work. He does it. He finished it. He paid for it. He puts us in the Holy Spirit and he changes us. It's so easy to be a Christian. Just let God do everything. Quit trying to do it yourself. Let God do it. You know, we want to get in and read our Bibles. We want to spend time learning. But we just let God change us and he changes us. He makes us perfect. And the last thing we want to look at here is this last section of this verse that says, let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another, envying one another. Now I want you to make sure you understand that that not applies to all three of those <laughs> things, okay? He's not, so we want to look at this. He says, desire. We're not to desire vainglory. Vainglory. Have you ever been around somebody who has vainglory? They're always telling you about how good they are. And it may or may not even be true. <laughs> you know, they exaggerate themselves, which is what we're talking about, vainglory. They're proud. They're, they're, you know, they're saying, look at me. You know, I've met pastors like that, unfortunately. They're saying, look at me. I'm the example. And then you watch them fall because God's not going to let them stand that way in front of them. But how easy is it to get vainglory? Sometimes as parents, we kind of get this idea of, uh, you know, kids, look at us, you know, we're bad, so don't do what we're doing, but, you know, but do these things. Vain glory. Worthless glory. Worthless exaltation. We are nothing in reality. We're only what God allows us to be. And if we're ever looking at somebody else and saying they're, they're something, be careful. Be careful. Paul told Timothy, follow me as I follow Christ. So if you're going to follow somebody, follow them as they follow Christ. They follow the word. Don't follow them into sin. Because sometimes that's what happens. People 
follow their idol, their person they put up on pedestal, into everything they do. And we've seen it over and over in life, where somebody, and this is why I tell you, if you're with a, if you listen to a Bible teacher, if you're ever hearing some, some words like, listen to what I say because I'm, I'm right, you know, don't have to go research or anything, get as far away from that teacher as you can, because whether they're right or wrong at that time, they're setting it up to be wrong. Paul praised the Bereans because they searched the scriptures to prove what he says. I encourage everybody, search the scriptures to make sure that what's being taught is true. Because I'm not on purpose going to teach anything wrong, but you know what? I'm fallible. I'm fallible, and there's quite possible that I will teach something wrong once in a while. I try very hard not to. I might even say the wrong things because my, my tongue gets tangled around my teeth and I forget, to, forget what I wanted to say. <laughs> you know, so we could be said wrong, not even taught wrong, but just said wrong and not even realize that you said it wrong. So we want to be able to look at this and say, God, keep us from vainglory. Don't lift us up. Because it is easy to do something great, especially for God. You do something, you, you go out and you, you lead a few people to the Lord, and you get all excited about how great an evangelist you are. You know, I led five people to the Lord this week, and, and I'm, look at me, I'm, I'm the greatest thing since sliced bread, and all of a sudden you fall flat on your face and, and can't even get anything else. Vain glory. It's all God. It's all God. Then the other one is, that it goes into says, and these are fruit, this is fruit of the works of the flesh, actually. Vainglory. Provoking one another. Oh, how easy is it to provoke one another? <laughs> Families do it all the time. <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, kids aren't happy with mom and dad, so they push a few buttons to provoke mom and dad into anger. Maybe even at each other rather than the kids, but you know. We, we all know our family or our friends or, you know, if I do this, they're going to get really upset. God says, don't do that. Don't provoke one another. Don't try to get people irritated. That's not showing the, God, the love of Christ to them. We don't see Jesus trying to provoke people into anger. He's loving them. Sometimes he's blunt and telling them the truth, which might anger them, but it's not to provoke them to anger. It's because he loves them too much to leave them where they're at. And there's times for that kind of talk. There's times for that kind of talk to say, hey, you know, look, this is what you're doing, and you shouldn't be doing this. I had one of those conversations with Annie this week. <laughs> you know, you're doing this, and you really shouldn't be doing this. It's not helping. Can that be a provoke to anger? It probably could, but it's also love saying you can't keep doing it. You know, it's love, you can't keep doing it. Provoking to anger is that little poke, you know, you know, hey, I saw what you did. I saw what you were doing the other day, or I know who you were with the other day, or whatever it might be, you know, to get them angry. I know what you were doing. You shouldn't have been committing that sin the other day. I was watching you. That's probably not going to help them. <laughs> Pray for them when you see that kind of stuff. Love them. Encourage them. Build them up. You know, and people will go, well, if they don't, if they don't know people are watching them, then they're going to keep sinning. They go, well, they may, but God's watching them. You know, it's very important for us to understand, if we're trying to defend ourselves or we try to correct somebody, and both are God's jobs. God's supposed to defend us and God is supposed to correct somebody. But if we want to do it, God's going to say, Okay, you go ahead and do it. 
I don't know about you, but I've never had much ch uh, success at changing people. Uh, I've tried it, believe me, I've tried it a few times in my lifetime, you know, lots of times. You know, uh, I've not had very much success in it. As a matter of fact, I don't think I've ever had any success in changing somebody's thinking other than to gently share God's word with them and let God change who they are. I'm not even good at defending myself. I'm not that quick at thinking. I'd just rather just say, God, I'm going to hide in your shelter. You're, you're, you're my fortress. I'm going to hide. And you know what? God steps up and defends you. You want to defend yourself? God will say, okay, defend yourself. You want to try to change somebody? God will say, okay, you keep trying, and I'll just stand back and watch you fail. And we will fail. And usually we'll make them mad at us because we were busy in their business trying to change them, and they'll be mad at us because we were trying to change them. And if we just step back and we pray for them and we encourage them and we look for the good that we can edify them for and watch God make the changes, might they get hurt? It's possible. How did we learn most of our lessons that we, that we really learn? Did we learn them because we said, okay, I'm going to obey God in this issue and I'm never going to step into this, step into this sin? Now, usually, now that can't happen that way, but usually we've stepped into the sin, got knocked down, trampled on, trampled on, and said, I don't think this was a good idea. And then if we're really smart, we only do it the one time. Most of us aren't that smart. We do it three or four, five, six, seven, eight times, a hundred times before we realize, okay, sin trampled. Sin trampled. Let's not sin anymore. Very important for us to not provoke one another. And sometimes that means that they're going to hurt. And you know, I understand very much as a parent, it's hard to let your kids make bad decisions and maybe have to hurt. But you know what? I had to learn the hard way. They probably have to learn the hard way too. I will try once or twice to tell them, no, don't do this. It's not a good idea. But if they really want to go down that path, I can't stop them. If, you know, I really can't stop them and they're going to get hurt. And if I try to stop them, all they're going to do is get mad at me and then not want to talk to me at all. So it's better just to take and love them and care for them. The last one we're going to look at on this verse, the, uh, the fruit of the works, is envying one another. Envy. Envy is a pretty strong word, and it means to be angry at the success of somebody else because it's not yours. <laughs> Have you ever been there? Your best friend... <laughs> gets a big promotion and makes a lot of money now and you're, why wasn't that job mine? I should have got that job or I should have been promoted. Why am I not promoted? That's envy. Well, you cannot be happy that somebody else got something that you didn't get is envy. And we do it so easy. We in our flesh do it so easy to say, I am so jealous I should have had that. We see it oftentimes in workplaces where two or three people are competing for the same promotion and they all believe they should have got it and there's only one. And I've seen people even quit when they didn't get their promotion because, well, I should have gotten it. I, I can't be happy for the person who got it. Even if in the back of their mind they know the other person deserved it a little bit more, they'll be envious and say, it should have been mine. It should have been mine. We go, to, we go to into the church situation and somebody gets to be the teacher of a class. 
and you go, I really wanted to be the teacher. I should have been the teacher. I understand the Word of God better than they do. Look at all the mistakes they made last Sunday when they were teaching. It should be me. Envy. The desire to say, I am not pleased that they got promoted in any way, shape, or form. I've seen parents who've got envious of their kids' successes. Now, most parents want to see their kids succeed, but when they actually succeed and get more money and all this, sometimes the parents will get envious, you know, like, why couldn't I have done it? Kids can get envious of one of each other, brothers and sisters. It is hard. Envy strikes us in all walks of our life where we say, it, I should get that. I should have got what they want, what they got. You know, I should have gotten that person to be my friend. I was, I was around them first. They should have been my best friend. You know, go back to the high school or college days when somebody, two people are liking the same individual and one ends up getting married to the, to the other and the other one doesn't. You know, and they have that envy, you know, should have been my girl or should have been my guy because I knew, I knew them first. You know, all the envy that goes in, you couldn't even be happy for your friend, you know, because they stole that person. Now, we want to be careful of this. Envy will destroy people. It will destroy relationships. In churches, it happens all the time when people get raised up and moved up and, and, and elevated and, and get to do something that somebody else wanted to do, and then there's this envy. Instead of being happy about what that other person got. You know what, if God doesn't raise you up in some area, he's got some other area he's going to raise you up in, just be happy. Be happy, don't be envious. These three things are part of the fruit of the flesh. The flesh and the pain and the, and the hurt. The whole idea of envy, provoking one another. You know, all of these things are out there that the works of the flesh are going to keep us from. We will reap what we sow. Whether we reap to the flesh or we reap to the flesh, uh, spirit, we will reap either the works of the the fruit of the, of the flesh or the fruit of the spirit. We need to really try hard to be sowing to the spirit. Living in the spirit, letting the spirit live through us and giving us his fruit. Because who you are connected with is what the fruit you're going to produce. And that's why two weeks ago we did that lesson on fruit of. Being connected to the vine, Jesus the vine. If we're not connected to him, unfortunately it's not the same as farming. And we use that example, if you cut the vine, the fruit from the vine, it withers. But in our lives, we're either connected to Jesus, the vine of life, or Satan and his world series, which is death. We don't get the option of just being cut off. We'll be cut, we will be part of one or the other. And this is why Christianity is so important. When we know Christ, we are cooked into the vine and we should be producing the fruit of the Spirit. And remember, fruit is something that happens because you have that life source. Not because I the, the, the fruit is on the, the flower on the, on the vine isn't saying, okay, I'm going, to become a, I'm going to become the plant. I'm going to become the big plant. I'm going to become the big plant. I'm going to... No, it just sits there, gets the nutrients from the vine, and grows. And that's who we are in Christ. All we do is sit on the plant, sit on the vine, and grow. We sit in the, in the spirit, in the vinegar, and we do get transformed. And it just happens. It happens. And we look back over our life, and we realize... Wow, look at all the changes that have happened in my life since I've come into Christ. Why? Well, I did it all. I worked real hard making these things happen. No, it just happened because God was in control and he changed it. Let's go ahead and close in prayer and we'll sing a couple of songs.
Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to learn to just be in the vine, in the, in the vinegar, in the spirit, so that we are changed. Help us to just be comfortable learning to just sit still and learn to let you do the work. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.